Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. I love that song, and this ministers to my heart, and this kind of gets the weight off of me onto God because this isn't about me. It's about Jesus and His glory and His mission going forward. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning is his mission going forward, that we have been set apart for a purpose, and that purpose is discipleship. And when we engage in that mission, there will be a unity in this church that cannot be denied when we focus on God's mission. So I want to show you two texts this morning, one in John 17. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do flip there. We're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 17, and then also I want to go to a quick passage in Matthew 28 that we're all very familiar with. And it's interesting because John 17 is uh, the Lord's Prayer. I like to call it that. It's the Holy of Holies of Scripture, where Jesus is bearing his heart before the Father. And it's interesting because we see him praying for the disciples to go forward with the Great Commission. And then in Matthew 28, we actually see that command to go forward with the Great Commission. So John chapter 17, verses 17 through 21 is what I'm going to read this morning. This is what it says. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe through their word, that... They may all be one, even as Father are I and me and you and I. And they also may be in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Now I want to quickly go to Matthew 28 real fast, and we're going to look at that, that sending. What was that being sent into the world? What was the mission? Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. We're probably very familiar with this. You could probably even quote it. Matthew 28. And after this, I'll pray, and we'll just hop into it. Matthew 28. And Jesus, this is him after the cross. So that before was him praying right before he goes to the cross, and this is after the cross. This is the resurrected Jesus. And he came to them, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has given to me in heaven and on earth. How quickly we always graze past that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And here's the command in light of that. He says, Go therefore. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he puts another phrase in there after that. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Let's pray. God, we're looking at very important texts this morning. And Lord, you know that I'm not the best preacher. But God, by your Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me this morning that we could grasp what we've been called out of the world to do. We pray that we would hear from your throne room this morning, that the Spirit would fall in this place freshly like never before. God, we believe you for that. We know you're capable. pray that, Lord, we would posture ourselves in a way to hear from heaven this morning, that you would be glorified through the teaching of your word. Would you raise up men and women, even this morning, that will abandon their lives to make disciples, whether it be the people of Tonga or the people in their backyard. So we give you all the praise and honor that's due your name. So please do these things in Jesus' name. 
I don't know about you guys, but I'm really fanatical about the Olympics. I get really excited when the Olympics come around. Um, I kind of binge watch the Olympics a little bit. And despite all the different events they have in the Olympics, there's one thing I love more than all of those. And it's not the swimming, it's not the wrestling, it's, it's not the track and field, it's not even the badminton. Although I, I love me some badminton, I can't believe that's a part of the Olympics. This trips me out, I feel like I should be on that team. But what I love more than all of that is the Parade of Nations, where at the very beginning of the Olympics, all these nations come together in a moment of time in this picture of unity, where they march in one by one. And they put off this sort of facade, like everything's cool with the world because we're all here marching in one by one. And when we look at the world and we see them marching into the stadium, we know everything is not unified in the world. It's actually quite opposite. And even more crazy, North Korea was there. And those guys came marching in. I was like, North Korea, those guys are isolated from the world. And here they are, marching in. And then even cooler than that, I don't know if you guys knew about this, but there was a refugee Olympic team. That was just 10 guys that came together that represented this picture of hope for the rest of the refugees that are spread across the world. And it was cool because right before they came in, they came in second to last. And when those guys started marching in, the whole stadium like stood up and started giving a standing ovation. And it was this beautiful picture of, of hope and unity. And that picture really got me stirred this week. And I wanted to begin to pray for a message about unity. And God kind of flipped the script on me because I was going to focus on unity so hard that he said, there's a byproduct of unity that comes through being on mission with me. Uh, this is something we can't manufacture. But when we press into what God's calling us to do as a church, unity becomes a byproduct. Just like those guys were there for the common language of sports, may we be here for a mission. And I remember my first job pretty vividly. Um, maybe you've heard of it, but it was this magical place called Burger King. That was my, my first job, and I don't like to tell people that, but that was my first job, Burger King. And um, for whatever reason, this was the most busiest Burger King on the planet, like right there in Alabama, the busiest Burger King. And I remember our chief goal at Burger King was to get the drive through time down really low. Anybody work fast food in here? No, this is me. There was like this big LED sign that showed like how much time it took on average for the last two hours for someone to get through the drive through like it, it was a tangible reminder of how bad or good we were doing. If we were unified around the mission of making Whoppers. And it was a tangible reminder and I remember I would work with certain crews, and we'd have that thing down to like 30 seconds or less. And it was usually some of my soccer bodies, buddies. We would like, hey, let's work at Burger King this summer. Cool, let's do it. Bad idea. But anyways, we unified around this mission. And we got that, that, that number down to 30 seconds. The Whoppers were sloppy, but that number was down. And then I would work with other guys, and, man, we'd have that thing up over five minutes. And the manager would be just so bummed. Like, what are you guys doing? And there wasn't a unification around the mission of making Whoppers. I don't know if we were brainwashed or what, but I want to take that horrible analogy to the church this morning. That 
we have been called out for a purpose. And I think that we all understand that unity is very important in this room, right? We get that. But I think that sometimes we're confused on how that actually looks. How does it look? How does it feel? What does it look like to the world? I mean, are you guys feeling unity right now? Like, is this unity? Like, is this what Jesus was talking about? That you get a bunch of people in a room for an hour and call that unity? Or we just get along and we have the same beliefs and after service we get some coffee? And the scripture says to not forsake yourself from gathering together. And I say, don't forsake yourself from drinking coffee. But I think that Jesus had a greater idea behind that. I think it's much more than just sitting in a room, having the same beliefs. Because if you look at the text, we're going to spend all of our time in John 17 from this point. If you look at the text in John 17, we're talking about a trinity that is like, or a unity, excuse me, that's like the trinity. Like, that should baffle our minds. It says in verse 21 that they may all be one. And look at this little phrase. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, he says, The glory which you have given me I give to them, that they may all be one, just as you and I are one. And what boggles my mind is those little phrases, even as... Just as we are one, we can't miss the gravity of what Jesus is praying for here. That even as the unity of the Trinity is reality, he prays that for us. He says, just as we are one, I want them to be one. So if we step back and think about the unity within the Trinity, I mean, never mind the parade of nations. Never mind Burger King, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect unity from eternity past to eternity future, in this relationship that is defined by unity. And Jesus, John 17 says, I'm praying that for the church. That should blow our minds. I want the church to experience that unity. So in light of those texts, I think that we can agree it has to be more than sitting side by side for a room for an hour each week, or just merely believing the same things. I think it has to be more than that. And if you guys will allow me, I want to press this truth a little bit further. I want to show you the why behind the unity. He says that in verse 21 and 23, he says, so that the world will believe you sent me. In verse 23, he says, so that the world will know that you have sent me. And the reality is, the world could care less if we sit in here for the next 20 years because we believe the same things. Like, They already know what we believe. But the thing that changes in their hearts and our minds is when we begin to not only believe it, but live it in a way that's bringing unity and glory to God. And I recently started some training this week with the Air Force. And before I even went down there, I just started praying to God that he would, you know, show me someone that I can get engaged with. That I can have you know faith conversations with, and sure enough, God being who God is, He brought me uh, along this guy, and we started having faith conversations almost instantly. And it was just a, a moment that I knew it was from God. But but as I've been talking to this guy, I've I've come to realize that he's agnostic. And the funny thing is, this guy has a lot of Christians in his family, and even 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 ministers. But 
from what I can tell, it has no impact on him because from his point of view, their beliefs have no impact on them. And so he doesn't associate with Christianity. He just kind of racks it up with the rest of the beliefs of the world. And just as that's true in his heart in that particular moment, I think it can be true for us here that just because we meet in a room and have the same beliefs doesn't mean the world can see that as a picture of unity. So what I'm arguing this morning, most simply, is that what tangibly unites us as Christians is the mission that God has called us to. Like just as the Olympics are united around sports, we are united around the mission that God has called us to. And the truth is, this mission is not optional. To be a Christian is to be a disciple maker. That despite the diversity that's represented across this room, we're all so very different. What makes us tangibly, visibly unified to the world is an engagement in this mission. And I love what Tim Keller said. He said, a common vision can unite people of very different temperance. Isn't that so true? That just as those guys were parading in the nations with different outfits, what united them was the common language of sports. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you this connection between sanctification, discipleship, and unity. Because like I said, I wanted to focus on the unity part, but the Lord showed me something much, much more better. So it's going to be about those three things. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at John 17, 17 through 21. And I want to show you that we've been set apart for a specific mission that will create that unity. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. We've already read it. He says, sanctify. You guys notice the sanctification language here and the missional language here. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And it's interesting because as you're reading through John 17, the sanctification section almost seems to come out of nowhere. And you also notice that this sanctification is sandwiched by this missional statement. He says, sanctify them in the truth, and just as I have sent them in the world, and then he says, I sanctify myself. It's sanctified sandwich. And we need to ask ourselves this morning, what is sanctification? I think that we have a clear idea in our mind, but I think it's more than what we often think. And the question I really want to ask this morning is, is why did Jesus pray for his own sanctification? Because this is really key for us to get our minds around, for us to understand who we are in Christ and our identity. So let's start with the meaning of sanctification. Sanctification literally means to be set apart or to make something holy, right? We think of the word saint, which means holy one or sanctified one. Scripture shows us over and over to be set apart for a special purpose, for a special mission is to be sanctified. So when God calls us saints, he's saying that I've saved you for a purpose. I've set you apart for a specific purpose. So you go back to the Old Testament and you can see this all over the place. Aaron and his sons needed to be sanctified for certain tasks. They were set apart as exclusive priests to God. And you think about the Day of Atonement. 
where Aaron would first, or the high priest would first offer a sacrifice for himself, right? So that he could be sanctified or set apart so that he could do a mission for God, which was to go in the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the people. He was sanctified for a purpose. And we see that over and over. We also see this with items in the Old Testament. Particular things set apart for special purposes. All the items of the tabernacle. And to bring this down even further, more understandable, the same thing is true in my house. Maybe even your house. We have different vessels that are sanctified for certain things. I have a Brita filter container, which is set apart for tap water. Because I don't trust tap water. I just don't want to drink it. I have a hydro flask that is set apart for only filtered water. And then I have a French press, which is only set apart for the most glorious, perfect coffee beans. Like nothing else is going in that French press except for coffee. Different things set apart for different purposes. And the same thing is true in Scripture. I hope that you guys are thinking about this from your own perspective. That as we have been saved, we have been set apart for an actual purpose. This is so huge for us to get our minds around. Because oftentimes, I think that we think of sanctification, right, as merely things we don't do anymore, right? I've been sanctified from this and that. I don't do those things anymore. And although those things are all true, the purpose of being set apart for those things is so that you would go and do something. And it's very particular what we would go do. So, so get the big picture here. We've been set apart from a life for living for ourselves to live a life on mission with God that's way bigger than we're ever going to be. Like God did not die on a cross so that we could cruise out the rest of this life, right? He saved us for a purpose. And it's so specific. And he wants us to engage in this mission by catch this, catch this. He's called us to a very particular mission. And I don't know if you guys have heard of Hudson Taylor, but he is one of my favorite missionaries who went to China. And he basically was a pioneering uh, missionary that went to China. And he just took this whole discipleship thing very seriously. And in the process, he's made lasting impacts on that nation's even today. And I love this quote that he says. He says, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And what he's saying here is God's given this clear mission that when we engage in that mission, he's never going to give us something that we can't bear, but he's always going to give us the supply that we need to fulfill it. And may the Same thing be true for us this morning, whether we're discipling our neighbor or the people of China. And all this has to rise out of the gospel, right? If we don't understand why we're going, who we are, why we're discipling, it has to start with the gravity of what the gospel is. It has to freshly grip our hearts every single day. And you've heard me say this before, but I think it's so important that that Jesus does not love some future version of who you are right now, now but he, he loves you just the way that you are. That although he's changing you and we feel like we need to measure up and we feel like we need to be good enough, God says, stop. You're already perfect in my eyes. And when that begins to resonate in your heart, I want you to take that to other people through this process called discipleship. And oftentimes, when I'm not with you guys and 
when I am with you guys, I think of the incredible giftedness that God has given us represented across this room. Like, I don't even know why I'm preaching. Like, there is incredibly gifted people across this room. The platforms that God has given us, the resources that God has given us, the location that God has given us. I think that God has given us something very special here at the mission. And I feel beyond blessed to be a part of it, but there's always a real danger, right? We're going to miss the full potential of God because we're not tapping into what He's already doing. The real danger that we have, that despite all the things that we have, the giftedness, the resources, the location, we can miss it if we don't tap into what God's doing. And the reality is God can do more amazing things through ungifted, impoverished, the middle-of-nowhere community believers who are radically sold out to the plan and design of God versus the most gifted, resource, prime-located community of believers who are apathetic towards God and creating their own plans. God says, I have a program, and I want you to become a part of it. I'm going to supply you in that mission. I mean, think about this. If you're born again this morning, we all have the Spirit of God living in us. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. What does it look like when hundreds of men and women who have God living in them raise up and say, I'm doing that mission? There should be radical reverberations of the gospel going from this place. God's living in us, and he's given us a purpose and a design. I love that, that quote. It says, God's work going God's way will never lack God's supply. So the picture of sanctification is not merely that we have been saved from certain things, but we have actually been set apart for to do a mission. And to press this point a little bit further, I want to talk about also why Jesus says, I want to sanctify myself. He says in verse 19, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And we clearly know that Jesus is not praying to be more holy or more perfect. He wasn't praying for those things because we know that Christ was perfect and blameless. Otherwise, he couldn't be the substitute for us. And what he's praying for here is the same thing that he's praying for the disciples. That he would be devoted to the mission that the Father had set him apart to do. The mission wasn't complete. He was still on the way to the cross. His mission was to come to this earth and to pour into 12 men, 11 of which he would go and rock the world with the gospel. By preaching what Jesus went on to do. Because he was sanctified, set apart for a particular mission. And the disciples, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see how the disciples had radical success because they simply engaged in God's mission. And that mission was to go and make disciples, whether that's in your backyard or Tonga or whatever. And another thing I want us to key in here on chapter 17, I want to zoom out and look at the big picture because this is really important to grasp. That when you read your Bible, you read in paragraphs so that you get the more full meaning of the text. But back in verse 4, John 17, he says, I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you have given me to do. And the interesting thing is here that he doesn't go on to talk about all the miracles. He isn't talking about preaching to the thousands, and he doesn't talking he doesn't talk about flipping the religious establishment on his head. 
It doesn't even mention that he's going to the cross. He just says, I've completed the work that you give me to do, and it's nothing about preaching. And it's nothing about the miracles. It's nothing about turning the Pharisees on their heads. And what does he say? Look what the work is. He mentions it in verse 6 through 8. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given from me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I gave to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. And then he says, my prayer is not for the world, but those who you have given me. Because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you. And you have given them to me so that they might bring me glory. And he goes on and on and on. And he connects the work that the Father had given him to pouring into 11 men who would bring glory through his name by being engaged on that mission. Of all the things that Jesus could have mentioned, walking on water thing, that was amazing. Raising Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't mention all that. He says, I finished the work you gave me to do. I poured into 11 men who went on to rock the world. And you'll notice that the Gospels, from cover to cover, start with a command or an opportunity to follow me and be my disciples. And it ends with the same thing. He says, go make disciples. Discipleship is what it means to be a Christian. And how did Jesus do it? He just simply gave these guys unfettered access to who he was. He gave them the opportunity to be with them by showing them the gospel and teaching them the gospel. It was a relationship. And especially me, but I feel like sometimes we just jazz up the mission of God so much that we kind of miss sight of what we're doing. Like we're just praying for the most crazy, ridiculous things that are not on God's heart. And oftentimes those things do happen, but every day God's just saying, go engage in discipleship with the people that you work with, with your, your neighbor. Teach them the word. Show them the word. Model the word to them. This is discipleship. Exactly what Jesus did with his disciples. The groundwork for the spread of the gospel message is really through the very ordinary process of meeting with people. That is exactly how Jesus did it. He met with people. He poured into their lives. And it was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly. Peter, my Lord, it was ugly. Sometimes I feel bad for Trip because he meets with me, but, you know, he's got a lot of grace for me. But that's the essence of discipleship, to meet with people and to help them grow and show and teach them the Word. And I think about my own life. I'm incredibly thankful that men have taken time apart from their own lives to spend time with me. And they showed me how it actually looks to follow Jesus. And probably the most significant person in my life has been Tom Sawyers, because I had just gotten saved at the mission, and I just did not know how this following Jesus thing looked. And I had a lot of difficulties and struggles and questions and doubts, but he was faithful to meet me under this tree in Milani at a park every week, where I would sit on a tree, I would often sob and cry because I was blowing it, but he would restore me and show me, well, this is what it means to follow Christ. And I think about the own men that I've walked with in my life that I've helped disciple and how they've actually spurred me on my own faith because they're coming and asking me questions. 
and I don't know what they're going to ask me. And oftentimes I didn't know what the answer was. So the next thing I know, I'm digging into the Word to find them answers and praying and seeking out counsel from other people. Hey, this person's going through this thing. Discipleship is ordinary. It's the process of people. It's relational. And sometimes, <laughs> the most awkward is they would ask me to pray for them, right? And I would just look at them. I would say, yeah, definitely. I'll pray for you, man. And they would just keep looking at me. I'm like, like now? Like, <laughs> right here at the YMCA? Like, there's people, like, lifting, dude. And, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I think so. So I just throw my arm on my friend Ben, and there we are, just praying next to, you know, guys just getting all yoked out on the bench press. I'm like, just praying for this guy. And it felt so uncomfortable, but it was a process where I thought I was pouring into this guy, and God's like, I'm going to grow you through this thing, you silly guy. You're going to pray for this guy in a public venue. And I was like, oh, gosh. And I remember this one time that my friend Ben, he was really timid with sharing the gospel. And I was down at Barber's Point at the air station down there just telling everybody about Jesus because I felt safe down there. And then one day, Ben's like preaching the gospel to some 90-year-old guy at the YMCA. He was just trying to get on elliptical and working out, you know. And this guy was like 90, and he's on that elliptical every day. And he's like, you know what, Brandon, I'm going to preach the gospel to that guy. And I'm like, man, not here. Why do you keep doing Christian stuff in the YMCA? Like, we do that in church at work, but not here. This is, you know, I'm compartmentalizing my life, dude. And, you know, Lord broke me of that. Discipleship is the nitty, gritty, ordinary, simply doing life together is the essence of discipleship. And this is something we can't miss as a church. We cannot miss this. We can't live these individual lives. Because God wants to pour in us so that we can pour into others. Butch made that analogy last week that's been stuck with me with the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Now there's this juxtaposition between the two. One's completely dead and the other one's life and vibrant. And the only difference between the two is one has an outflow and the other doesn't. One gets poured into and poured into, but the other one doesn't pour anything out. One's alive and one's dead. So thank you, Butch. That's, that's never going to leave my mind. And to prove the importance of discipleship even further, I want to mention this quote from this guy named Bonhoeffer. And he was this brilliant Lutheran pastor who lived during the Nazi regime. And he raised up and he basically opposed Hitler and lost his life in the process. But he wrote, he wrote all these amazing books. But probably the best book that he wrote was this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, this is what he states. He says, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. That's a strong statement. It's a really strong statement, but I think it holds a lot of weight because the real danger for us is to make disciple-making as a sort of secondary issue. And I think the modern church has kind of catered to that, where we have unintentionally made Sunday mornings the form of discipleship. Because we come here for an hour, and we hear somebody speak, and we, we pray, some, we uh, sing some songs, and sometimes we actually regurgitate something we learn later that week. But all of that's void of discipleship. But the reality is, being a follower of Christ is to be a disciple and a disciple And if you're still not convinced, I want to show you one last thing. The sheer magnitude of the phrases that come right before 
and after the Great Commission. I've already kind of hinted towards it. And we have to imagine this for a second, right? The resurrected Christ is standing before you. And the summation of his time with the disciples before he ascends to heaven, he says these two phrases. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And on the other side of that missional statement, he says, and I'm going to be with you always. Two massive phrases, like he wanted them to get it. Like this is all authority. Everything's been given to me to give to you to do this thing. And not only that, but I'm going to be with you while you go do this thing. Whether it's ordinary or if it's in China or in Tonga. He says, go and make disciples between those two huge statements. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And God has promised to always faithfully bless an engagement in discipleship. When we get on page with what he's already doing. And I realize that this is going to look different in different people's lives. And we all have different opinions on what discipleship looks like. And that's okay. People are different. Across the landscape of Christianity, discipleship will look different in different places. But it all boils down to sharing the gospel and showing the gospel in the context of relationship. And oftentimes I think the reason that we fail to engage in discipleship is because we don't know how to do it, or because it's awkward for us to meet with other people, or we just don't want anyone coming into our own time. And I myself am chiefly guilty of all of these things. But despite me and the way we feel, this is absolutely consistent throughout the New Testament. To follow Jesus is to make disciples. We are to die for ourselves and to live for others. I hope that you guys are catching this. Christianity and discipleship is not a call for some, but it's a call for every one of us. And as I begin to close this thing down, I want to... Did we have a title screen up there? Does it say unity at the bottom? Oh, cool. Okay. That's my last point, so I was hoping it was there. I want to show you what this does as we engage in this mission. In verse 20 and 21, he says, John 17, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but those who will believe in me through their word. Talking about us. The disciples picked up this mission, and they started discipling people. Here we are on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, worshiping Jesus. Praise God for their faithful engagement in this mission. And then he says, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. We have to realize that Jesus is not praying for some sort of surface level um, unity that we could ever create or manufacture. What he's saying is when the people that I have called out, that I've sanctified for a purpose, get on page with the mission that I'm doing, they will be unified. There's nothing we can do to promote unity and manufacture it. But could it be that when each one of us decide to lay down our lives just to meet with somebody on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and pour into them, that when we die to ourselves, our lives, our wants, our desires to make disciples, could it be that unity is only compromised when we compromise the mission that God has given us to do? And I'm absolutely convinced that unity is a byproduct of being on mission with God. And as I was praying this week, I was, Lord, give me a message on unity. And he said, focus on my mission. Focus on my mission. So I found this text. And the reality is God has died on a cross. 
He set us apart for a mission, and that mission is so simple and so ordinary and so nitty-gritty that it will create unity within the church that they can't deny. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity just to talk about your word. It all belongs to you and for your glory. But I pray now that by your spirit that you would teach us these things deeper this week. Lord, I know that I'm the most guilty of failing to meet with people, but I pray that um, as I spend time with you, that you would put people on my heart that, that need to hear you, need to see you modeled through my life. God, I pray that as we enter into a time of worship, that your spirit would fall in a strong way and we would get a new sense of what it means to be a Christian, God. What it means to be a disciple of you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son. Thank you, Jesus, that you now send us. May you get glory through our bodies, Lord. Not only that, we thank you that you've given us your spirit, God. We're not left alone in this mission, but may we just grab hands and do this all together, God, so that the North Shore will know that Jesus lives in that little cafeteria building, especially as we scatter throughout the community. Lord, would you bond us together with the unity? Cannot be mistaken. Lord, we love you this morning, and we just say that, you know, thank you that you loved us first. We want to give you honor even today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.